before I start today, Ange, you're still hiding out the back there, but I just want to honour you. Um, not just you, Ange, but the whole worship team. That was, that was really awesome. I particularly love that last song where it says, I am who you say I am. It just totally ties in with um, what I'm going to be speaking about today as well. So I love it when that happens. Um, just a couple of things before I get started and underway. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Sue and I work on the staff here at Connect. Um, a couple of things I'll just clarify when Kim mentioned about the voting on the council or um, the AGM. So we'll have the AGM on the 13th of March. Whether or not we have food, we'll just decide as we get a bit closer to the time because things keep changing with COVID. Um, but we will let everybody know, um, the council and the elder nominees, so that we can vote on them during the next couple of weeks. So we will get that information out to you. We'll collate that and get that out to you before. Just before I start today, I just want to define a couple of terms. Now, I'm an accountant by training, so this might sound really boring. And these are Sue Avery terms, they're not Oxford Dictionary terms. Okay, so first of all, a transactional relationship. So this, in my mind, is a relationship that exists to facilitate transactions between parties. Both parties are looking for a mutually beneficial relationship and the transactions are equal, not necessarily equal in value, but equal in value to the parties. A relational transaction, on the hand, other hand, as opposed to a transactional relationship. A relational transaction is a transaction that's entered into to build up the relationship. You give, and your purpose in giving is, order, is in order to build that relationship. So you might think that's all semantics and transactions. It's an accountant talking. What, what can you say? It's boring, eh, Rodney? Yeah. Um, but actually, the difference between the two is huge. And this was illustrated for me a wee while ago. I am at a visit to Umaka Marae. Back in 2019, I was invited to attend a cultural education day there. And I was invited um, in my role as the chairperson of Business Trust Marlborough, along with other business leaders and organisation leaders. So I went along there with my business trust hat on, transactional hat on, well and truly, firmly applied. So I had this view of I could go along there and I could um, learn how we could better support Māori businesses and also with the idea that maybe I could connect with one of Māori business leaders and invite them to become a trustee on our trust so I could get that multicultural perspective from a, a board level. So we arrived there and we were all welcomed onto the marae in the traditional way and then they stopped to explain what each part of that welcome meant. It was um, a real feeling of warmth there. They weren't just being hospitable and friendly. There was a real genuine feeling of warmth. And it turned out to be um, an amazing day. The food was fantastic. I'm just going to have to say that. But it was a really interesting, educational and uplifting experience. Now, several times during the day, I tried to talk to the facilitator about how I trust could support health businesses. Doing something wrong there? Oh, look at that. <clears throat> it was me. 
clearly getting too excited about my message. <laughs> so I tried to talk to the facilitator about how our trust could support multi-businesses um, and how I could potentially get a multi-voice to be on our trust board. And I just couldn't get a straight answer. It was really interesting. It was like she was being evasive or distant. And I kind of felt like I was missing something. So I, I changed my tact a bit and I focused more on what we could do for them in terms of supporting their businesses. And I thought that way we could build a relationship and then maybe later on we could get a multi-trustee on board. So I started out with this transactional relationship mindset and moved to a relational transaction mindset. I started off thinking what we could give to each other and then I moved into what can I give to you to build this relationship. So how does this relate to us and our journey with Jesus? Well, at this point, you might be thinking, Jesus' sacrifice is the ultimate relational transaction. If you've got your Bibles with you, can you just um, turn to First Peter? In First Peter chapter 3. And down in verse 18... It says, therefore, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So he sacrificed in order that we could come into relationship with God. He gave to build this relationship. In fact, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis right through to Revelation is about a God who sacrificed so that he could restore and build relationship with his creation. It was a transaction, his life for ours. But it wasn't exactly a fair deal for Jesus. It wasn't a balanced transaction, but he entered into it to restore and build relationship. Back to my experience at Allmarker. When I tried to offer my support to assist multi-businesses, thinking that this would build relationship, it was still met with these evasive responses. So I was puzzled. I was definitely missing something and I didn't understand what it was so I just sat back and I observed and I enjoyed their hospitality their warmth their food I mentioned the food already didn't I but the food was awesome and as I watched and I listened I came to realize what I was missing at the end of the day the facilitator asked us for our reflections on the day and mine was simply this that within the Maori culture Relationships always come before the transactions. Now, when I said that, they were going around with a video camera, and when I said that, the guy with the video camera put the video camera down and the facilitator had tears in her eyes. And then they looked at each other and they said, she finally got it. <laughs> I don't think they thought I would. But it taught me that even with relational transactions, the ones where we're giving to build a relationship, often people will only be open to that when they see that we are genuinely interested in them and not just wanting to create a relationship with our own agenda. We can't always give without a relationship there to start with. How often do you turn away a gift if you're unsure of the giver? Now, 
actually, just when I went into my office just before, I'm just going to clarify this. There's some chocolates on my desk, and I don't know who's given them to me, but I'm not going to turn them away. Okay. <laughs> they look delicious. Okay, but that might sound unusual, turning away a gift. But if you think about on the internet, quite often there's a lot of free giveaways, and you just skip over them because you aren't sure of the company or the person behind it. So you're not sure of their motives, you're a bit suspicious of them, or, you know, quite often they're trying to give you a gift to build a relationship with you, whether it's as a customer or a business. But we skip over it because we've got no background to base it on. It could be great if we check it out, but for various reasons we don't. And often I've noticed it's the same with the gospel message of Jesus. Jesus provided this gift to everyone so that he could have a personal relationship with us all. But some people skip over it because they're unsure of the giver. They need someone to not just teach them about Jesus, but to model Jesus and to form that relationship. The people at Ormaka were more interested in my behaviour than what I said. I could tell them how I could help them, but until they saw my behaviour, that I was genuinely interested in them, in their perspective, in their culture, I just didn't carry much weight. And that's completely understandable. Recently, over the last year, I've been doing a bit of work in kids' church. Um, and towards the end of last year, I also got involved in the youth group. And sometimes it's been hard work. Um, and occasionally I've walked away going, what did the kids learn? Did they learn something? Now, Pastor Shan has put together this amazing, amazing kids' church curriculum. Um, so when I got into the kids' church, I was quite keen to make sure every box was ticked and they got to learn these things. And it is really, really important, that knowledge transfer, totally. But then I started hearing these stories of people who were coming back to Jesus in their later years. Um, the other night, I had Dee over for dinner, and she shared a story about how she was at a reunion, and a, a gentleman, who was now a grandfather, came up to her and said, you used to pick me up and take me for um, to children's church, or the youth group on the Friday night, and we had a meal. And that, what she did for him, was a big part in him coming to Jesus later on in his later life. And in all these different stories I was hearing, none of it, none of the memories were about what they learnt. None of the memories were about necessarily the Bible verses. And I'm not saying any of that is bad. We definitely need to focus on that. And Shannon's done a great job of putting that curriculum together. But the memories people talked about were about how they were treated at kids' church, or how they were treated in youth group, or how they were made to feel in youth group or at kids' church. They were talking about relational transactions. People were giving to build a relationship before they could then transfer any knowledge. It's quite often you hear people say, um, th that they won't remember what you've said, but they will remember how you've made them feel. And when it comes to Jesus, 
what he gave us was much more than a relational transaction. It was much more than a gift in order to form a relationship with us. He was actually modeling a whole way of building relationships. Reading through the book of Acts, um, the new Christians in there were so devoted to each other and to sharing the gospel. They didn't teach about Jesus. They modeled Jesus. And I believe, and this is, a, this is a big claim, but I believe that if we as his followers could fully comprehend modeling this way of forming relationships, then we would see the same exponential church growth that they saw in the first century. So that's a big claim. But stick with me here. I want to share a couple of scriptures looking more at the character of our God just to explain that a bit further. If you've got your Bibles there, if you can turn to the book of Matthew, in chapter 5, verse 45. It says there that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the second scripture I want to share with you is in Luke, uh, chapter 6 and verse 35. And it says there, but love your enemies. This is Jesus talking. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And that's just the bit that I wanted to focus on there. So, yeah, it was a relational transaction. He gave in order to restore and build a relationship. But he did it knowing that in some situations he would get nothing in return, that his suffering wouldn't be appreciated, wouldn't be deemed worthy, it wouldn't be useful to some people because they wouldn't accept it. It was sacrificial giving with no agenda, giving knowing he wouldn't receive back. It was unconditional love. So what Jesus models for us is supernatural love. So the question I want to ask for all of us today is what are we modelling? Behaviours prove belief. And I'll say that again, behaviours, the way we behave proves what we believe. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect in any way at all. Um, Tenika works in the office with me, she knows I'm not. Even a little bit. You don't have to. You don't have to add anything there, by the way. But what I'm saying is, people will put a lot more weight on our actions than our words. I believe that some of that exponential growth that the first century church saw came out of the fact that they modelled this supernatural love so well in their relationships with each other and with those in their community. If you read the book of Acts, and I love the book of Acts, it's like um, an action adventure story. It moves quickly and things happen. It's probably one of my favourite books in the Bible, actually. But as you read it, you find that they sold what they had. They shared their resources and they fully expended themselves to share the gospel. Their focus was on what they could give, not what they could get back. In Acts chapter 8, a majority of the church gets scattered due to the persecution that was going on. 
But in, in verse 4 to 6, it tells us that those that had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And what's interesting to me is that they lost their place of worship, the temple in Jerusalem. They no longer had access to that. And they were scattered into all these different places. But in the different places where they went, they didn't look to build themselves another place to meet. They looked to find a new mission field. They looked to give, not to make themselves comfortable. Here's a tricky question for you, especially for the members of the finance team. If Connect lost all their buildings tomorrow in an earthquake or a fire or something like that, and we got the insurance payout, what would we do with the money? Would we build a new building exactly the same? Or would we put the money into mission work? Now, that's a rhetorical question, except for the finance team. Or, you know, if you want to email the finance team, Jane over there, and talk to Jane. She's pretty good. <clears throat> now, here at Connect, we've recently just had some new plans drawn up for a new extension to our building. But the whole reason that we've done that is because we want to place, make this a more missional place, a place where the community can come and receive, a place that gives to the community, not just a place where we come to receive. Giving of ourselves for others in the church and the community, irrespective of the outcome, is what Jesus modelled for us. And when the early Christians imitated this, it says in Acts 2 that the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were saved. Now, funnily enough, that's our mission statement here at Connect, to connect people with Jesus daily. And we do that through focusing on growing our relationship with God, with each other, and with those in our community. So in preparing the sermon, I was asking God, why is it sometimes really hard to do? When we know, how, you know, when we see opportunities to give, why do we sometimes not step out and give? Where we see opportunities to help people, why do we sometimes pull back? Where there's opportunities to serve, why do we sometimes let someone else do it? And I feel like God highlighted a few things to me. The first one is sometimes we get really caught up in ourselves and focused on ourselves. Um, any mum in the audience who's asked their kids to help tidy up at any stage, have you got any of the responses like, I didn't make the mess, or I cleaned it last time, or it's not fair? Or dads in the audience, you might have got their response, I don't know. <laughs> Now, of course, my children never say anything like that because they're really close to perfect, and I'm just saying that just in case they're listening online. <clears throat> but it's a familiar situation. It's really easy to feel like this. In this situation, we're focusing on ourselves and whether the other person deserves our help. And it's really easy to feel like that sometimes within a community context. If we've reached out to help people before, or serve on a team or something, and then we feel it wasn't appreciated, or it wasn't noticed, or it didn't have the effect that we thought it was going to have. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, I'm not sure if I gave that one to you, though, but if you just want to turn to that in your Bible... It makes this statement. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And another version that I was looking at says, Think of others as better than yourselves. Not better at something. Everybody's better at something than someone else. But just better. Again, this was modelled for us by Jesus. The arguments about it's not fair or do they deserve my help, just don't stand up in the light of Jesus' sacrifice. What happened to him wasn't fair. And he didn't get what he deserved. But he still made the sacrifice. And because he made that sacrifice, we didn't get what we deserved either. And I'm thankful for that. More commonly, though, I think a lot of us have the heart to want to help. But we're just so busy. We've got so much on our plate. And recently, I was praying over my to-do list, which needs prayer. Um, anyone else got a to-do list that needs prayer? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit like that. And I felt like God really challenged me. Like, I was asking God, is everything on my to-do list, is this the stuff you want me to be doing? And I felt like God challenged me to actually, not necessarily take anything off my to-do list, but to reframe each of the tasks on my to-do list in terms of relationship. Think about who I'd be connecting with. How would I like them to walk away feeling? What would I like them to know about Jesus? Not necessarily through what I say, but the way I treat them. What's my long-term hope for that relationship? It was like he wanted me to be really intentional in those interactions. And again, I'm not doing it perfectly, as anyone in the office will tell you. But it totally refocused and transformed my to-do list. If people's lives and salvation are the most important thing, then how we model Jesus to them in our interactions should be the number one priority on our to-do list. The other thing that God highlighted to me was fear. And sometimes what on the surface might look like a spirit of selfishness is actually a spirit of fear. We step back and we don't reach out and help or serve where we could out of fear. Fear of being rejected, fear of not being good enough, fear of being used. What if we put in a lot of effort and no one cares? What if we, it doesn't, what we're working on doesn't get the results that we're hoping it will get? The fear of being vulnerable, just even being vulnerable to these possibilities is uncomfortable. Actually, back in um, 2020, Shannon was doing his preaching roster and he asked if I'd like to preach. So I said, oh, okay. And um, <laughs> I don't know if I said okay exactly, but um, the word that I got from God straight away to preach on was this word vulnerability, which made me feel incredibly uncomfortable and vulnerable, <laughs> ironically. Um, for anyone who knows me, vulnerability is not my strong point. Thanks, Angie. Yeah, I know. However, then we went into lockdown, so I didn't have to preach. I was like, yes, thank you, Jesus. And then during lockdown, Shannon actually preached, without me saying anything, actually preached on vulnerability and how Jesus modelled vulnerability, how he was born on earth as a helpless human baby, as vulnerable as you can get, 
was here to make a sacrifice to give up his life for many people who wouldn't appreciate it. Shannon spoke about how vulnerability begets vulnerability, which means if we're open and vulnerable with people, it helps them to be open with us and then, to me, more open to what Jesus is doing in their life. So we know that we need to, but the question is, how? How do we overcome that um, uncomfortable feeling of stepping out of our comfort zone? Excuse me for a minute. There's a famous author called Brene Brown, who Tenika likes reading about. And she calls vulnerability being um, having the courage to give something your all when you can't control the outcome. So what can help us to do that in this context of stepping out and serving and helping others, whether it's within the congregation or out in the community? So I reflected on this and I prayed to God about it. And I prayed to God about it because actually it's one of my big things. Um, When we, as a staff team, travelled to the Caleb Leadership Course last year, um, it was really highlighted that I really struggled with vulnerability because every two minutes they wanted you to get up and tell a personal story about yourself. And as the staff know, I really struggled with that. So I was reflecting on this and I was asking God, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you get over it? How... How do you work through it? And I felt like God simply asked me, who are you? (coughs) Excuse me. Who am I? It all comes down to who we believe we are, how we identify ourselves, who we actually believe we are, not who we say we believe we are. If you've got your Bibles there, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 10. I love the book of Ephesians. It's like the first half of it is written um, telling us who we are, and then the second half of it is written telling us how that means we will live if we really believe the first half. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The NLT version uses the word masterpiece there instead of handiwork. And the Greek word also means poem, so a work of art. One definition that I found of a poem is a form of self-expression that knows no bounds. So we are a godly form of self-expression that knows no bounds. Now that's just one scripture about our identity. We're also told in the Bible that we're wonderfully made, we're cherished children of God, that we're co-laborers with him. So we're God's masterpiece, working side by side with him, the creator of the universe. And that's mind-blowing when you really stop to meditate on it. But behaviours prove beliefs. You've still got your Bibles there. Turn to um, John chapter 13. And this is where um, Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples. If we read from verse 3 through down to verse 5, it says there, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power 
and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So in those verses, I just want to focus on one two-letter word. At the start of verse 4, it says, So. That's why Jesus could get up and wash his disciples' feet, even knowing that they would soon betray and abandon him. It's because he was clear in his identity. Verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. The actions of the other people didn't change his identity. Here's the question. Would we serve people who we knew were going to betray or abandon us? Would we serve people who had betrayed or hurt us in some way? Would we serve people in a way that might be considered menial, even if we knew we had a higher calling from God? If we are acting in a way that is fully congruent with our identity in Christ, then we will not fear being used, being rejected, being unseen, being unappreciated, or our talents not fully being used. Because we will know who we are in Christ, and he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Our identity with him is secure, irrespective of how anyone treats us or how anything turns out. But our behaviour shows us how secure we are in that belief. Our activity should flow from this identity and not the other way around. The other thing I felt God highlighted to me was if you could see people the way I see them, it would change how you'd feel about serving them in the congregation and in the community. Now, I've got a bit of a strange story to tell here. When I told Stan, and he did look at me a bit strange, so. But it's back when I was a new Christian. Um, I was really into rock music and heavy metal, and I still am. Um, but I discovered Christian rock music and Christian heavy metal. And I like the day I discovered it, I was like, whoa, this is like super cool. It's everything I love and really meaningful lyrics. And I think I sat in my office at the Business Trust with my headphones on all day and just skipping through songs. Um, so I listened to these songs for ages. Um, and I didn't listen to anything else. But then... Something funny happened. When I went back to listen to some of the old songs, the old secular rock music or heavy metal, I could hear Jesus in the lyrics. And this is the point where Shannon looked at me weird, like, oh, you've gone off point there. But here's the thing. Um, for example, there's a song that Nirvana sings, and they say, come as you are. Doused in mud, soaked in bleach, come as you are. I was like, Oh, that's just what Jesus says to me. There's another, there's a whole list of songs that I could um, go through, but I won't because possibly you don't know what they are. <laughs> what had happened here, the words were the same as when I listened to them before. They hadn't become Christian songs. They were still secular songs. What had happened is my filter was different. 
It's like I was wearing Jesus-coloured glasses. In psychological terms, this is actually called our reticulated activating system. And I love it. It's the RAS. So our brain is bombarded every day with a gazillion bits of information. And yes, for the maths teachers in the room, that is a number according to counting terms. Um, but we get bombarded with all this different information every day and all sorts of stimuli. And the reticulated activating system in our brain is the system that our brain uses to go, that's important, that's not, and filter out what it's going to pay attention to and what it's not. Another example was just the other day, um, I arrived in the office on Monday morning and there was a note on my desk saying, there's a leak under the church. So I got on the phone and I had to ring about three plumbers before I could find someone who could come out that day. Once I'd organised that, I drove down to the bank. Now, on my drive to the bank, I saw three plumbers vans, all the same firms I'd just rung. Any other day, I would never have noticed them. That was my reticulated activating system at work. Now, most of the time, our reticulated activating system is subconscious, and our brain decides what it's going to delete and what it's going to pay attention to. But we can choose to direct it just by the questions that we ask ourselves. And that's why we're told in Romans that we're to be um, transformed by renewing our minds. We're actually creating these new neural pathways that will become automatic habitual thoughts. So just think of the possibilities here. Think of the possibilities here when we're out in the community. What if when we're going out and about in our workday, out in the community, what if we ask the Holy Spirit each day to show us where he's already working in the lives of the people we're coming into contact with in our community so we can come alongside and work with him. And he is already working in everybody's lives out there. If I look back at my pre-Christian life now, I can see so many times where God was trying to get my attention. Um, and sometimes he got it for a split second, and other times he didn't. But he's gone back and he's shown me that. So if we are to go about um, our dealings with people in the community with that mindset of, where's Jesus already at work in their lives? Because we know in Jeremiah, it says that God has a plan for us. God has a plan for everybody. And we're co-laborers with the Holy Spirit. So what if we could see Jesus, uh, see people as Jesus sees them? Jesus demonstrated not just a relational transaction, but supernatural, unconditional love. And he gave knowing that in some situations his gift would be unappreciated. He gave in some situations knowing it wouldn't even be noticed or it would be completely rejected. He showed the ultimate vulnerability and when the first century Christians modelled this, both within and outside their church, it drew people to them. Supernatural, unconditional love draws people in. I'm just going to finish with this thought. Last year when I attended the Caleb Leadership Course, the one thing that stuck with me was, well, not the one thing, but one of the things that stuck with me was the saying that people will follow with the heart with which you lead. Meaning that what you model 
is what you will get in the people following you. Now, I know we don't want people following us, but we are all leaders. Irrespective of our employment status or our family situation, we're all leaders. We've all been invited by Jesus. Actually, we've all been commanded by Jesus to lead people to him. Jesus is asking us all to be leaders in our own context, in our own circle of influence. If we lead people to Jesus, modelling that sacrificial heart, that one of unconditional love, the one of giving out of genuine interest in people, one of giving irrespective of whether we're noticed, appreciated, people will be attracted to this and they will follow Jesus with this. And I believe this will have a flow-on effect of attracting more people, creating that revival that we all pray for. A few weeks ago, Bo preached on the parable of the sower and the seeds. And I spoke there about seeds being cast upon good soil and that they would produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. For the people listening to that parable, the natural yield at that time was seven to eight times. So when they heard 30, 60, and 100, they knew this was supernatural. This was something different. What would that look like here in Marlborough? What would that look like in your workplace, in your circle of influence? What would it like to be really intentional in our interactions with people this week, to model Jesus to them? Whether that's at the local takeaways or at our workplace, within our family or here in our church family. Let's get giving and loving people like Jesus right at the top of our to-do lists. Can I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the, most, um, the most amazing sacrifice that you have made, which you have done in order to restore relationship and build relationship with us. We know that it's just the most amazing, supernatural love. Your word says that you are love. God is love. And we know that that's true. Please, Lord Jesus, help us to model that in our lives. To not just give to build a relationship, but to, to build those relationships first to connect with people where people are at, just like you do, to meet people where they are at. Lord Jesus, I pray for each and every one here in our congregation today that they will be able to look at giving, look at serving, look at connecting with people in a different way. Because Lord Jesus, we pray for the time when all will come to know who you are. And we know that through modelling who you are, then people will become open to receiving this gift of eternal life that you have given them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone. That concludes our service for today.